A warm welcome, everybody. I'm Erin Mahalik. I'm the leader and director of Crest BD, and it's my um, extreme pleasure to join you today uh, for the last of the series of Talk BD for uh, 2020, um, the year that many of us are going to be happy to see the back of, I think. We will be joining you for these events through 2021 too, so this won't be the, the last event, um, but I'm particularly excited about today's um, and part of that for me to be honest is is personal um, I don't actually live with bipolar disorder myself um, but I am constantly extremely worried about my cognitive functioning <laughs> it's actually uh, I had a, a car accident when I was a teenager and quite a severe head injury at the time and you know I like to kind of understand that I think and memorize things so badly because of that head injury but regardless what the reason is for it. It's a constant source of embarrassment for me. I have a hard time in particular remembering people's names. Um, I've been known on many occasions to do things like stand there by my office door with my key fob trying to open it. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's something that uh, is really kind of weighs on me. So just personally, I'm really excited for the event today. Um, as you know, if you've been joining us through, uh, through the year for these events, we pick them um, on topics um, of choice by our community and they're really good for people with bi bipolar disorder but also for the general population as well so we hope there'll be tips and tools shared today by um, our three speakers. So welcome to everybody there's quite a few of you joining us by zoom by facebook live or streaming this event uh, wishes luck this is the first time we've tried to do it with, with three speakers so uh, let's dive right in uh, start with some introductions um, and we'll start with Dr. Trisha Chakrabarty. Thanks, Erin, and hi, everyone. Um, I'm very, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so glad Erin uh, and Caden and the team invited me. So I'm a uh, psychiatrist. I do outpatient work at uh, the Mood Disorder Center at UBC. I'm also an assistant professor, so I do research as well in my uh, area of research focus is cognition in, in mood disorders. Um, so just, I guess, uh, going on with uh, the comment that Aaron uh, had made, I've also always had a bit of a, in, a personal interest in cognition because I find that my spatial navigation skills are like really, really lacking. Like I, I need GPS to get from point A to point B, no matter how many times I've gone that route. And that's always been a real source of embarrassment um, to me. And I've always wondered, like, I wonder why I'm just so bad at doing that. Um, so that's kind of my, <laughs> my, uh, my embarrassing sort of uh, deficit I find myself with. Um, yeah, uh, so I've, I'm just so thrilled to be here and um, to, to be joining uh, Victoria and Ivan. Welcome, Tricia. And one of the things we always do with these events is ask people to talk about something that has nothing to do with their work life, something that you've been doing for yourself over the last year to maintain your own balance and wellness. So I have found, especially since March, um, I have tried to resume um, a sort of daily yoga practice, which has been helpful. And I found there's a YouTube channel that has um, 10 minute yoga videos which is also helpful because I always think, you know, no matter how tired or unmotivated I feel, it's like, well, I can, I can manage 10 minutes. And sometimes it turns into more and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but it's been really nice to have that kind of bite-sized yoga to help keep me uh, sane during this time. 
<laughs> Thank you. Ivan Torres. Hello and welcome everyone. Um, it, it is very much of a pleasure to, to be here with you today and and with some colleagues and friends so we can uh, you know, share some some uh, experiences and, and hopefully provide some information that, that can be useful. Um, so uh, just by way of introduction, I'm a clinical professor at University of British Columbia. Um, and my roles are, and I'm also a clinical neuropsychologist by training. So the clinical work that I do uh, revolves around doing um, uh, basically cognitive evaluations in various different clinical populations, although um, the, the unit that I work in right now is primarily involved in treating people uh, with uh, psychosis and similar kinds of challenges. Um, but my area in general is in mood disorders and psychosis. Um, and I've been practicing for many years now um, throughout my career, even though I, I also have done a lot of research in the area. I've always maintained, um, you know, clinical work as, as part of what I do. It's, it's certainly a passion of mine that goes back many years now. Um, uh, since we're self-revealing about uh, personal cognitive limitations here, I, I must say that the, the things that I really struggle with are um, uh, in, in some of the, the verbal memory kinds of tasks that, that we give some of our, 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 our clients. Um, who we see for evaluations. Um, I'm very humbled by the fact that, um, you know, people are, are, you know, in the course of evaluations that, uh, that we're putting, you know, we're making people uh, exercise their brains and work really hard. And, um, and I don't see how on some of the verbal memory tests, which are very challenging, where you basically present verbal information and you're not allowed to write this stuff down and you have to keep it in mind. That's something that I've always found very challenging. But uh, nonetheless, um, uh, it's a uh, thrill to be here today and I look forward to our conversation. You're a drummer, right. Surely that takes, does that take a different type of memory from verbal memory, I guess? <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Um, I'm much better at the nonverbal things. I can remember designs and you know, uh, sort of spatial kinds of things. But when it comes to the stuff that you hear, like in a, you know, in a classroom, it's much more of a struggle. Thanks, Ivan. And Victoria. Hi, welcome everybody. It's great to see everybody here. And Trisha and Ivan, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm a mental health speaker and I live with bipolar disorder, anxiety and psychosis. Uh, I've been living with it fairly well for the last 20 years, um, still experience symptoms though. And I've been uh, a core member of uh, the Crest team since its inception, since I guess 2007, right? Um, and really enjoy the multiple roles that I've played and really encourage anyone that's um, uh, wanting to get involved uh, in research who happens to have the disorder to really um, reach out to Aaron. It's a really good experience. Um, in terms of self-disclosure around my own, um, 
it, you'll probably hear them as we go through the program today because I'll be talking about sort of what happens for me in, in mania and depression, hypomania, and then also when my mood's quite stable. And uh, I really need to make a point of using wellness tools to sort of support that cognitive functioning, which I think can help everybody or anybody, whether they have mental illness or not. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, I'll let the surprise happen later on. Um, and then what I do for wellness, well, recently I um, have rediscovered sewing and it's not really rediscovered because I, I actually was really bad at it when I was in high school anyway, but I haven't done it since like grade eight or nine. And a friend gifted me a 1958 sewing machine, which I love because it's super basic. And it just, it's so nice. It's like meditation. It's like going away and reading a novel. And I get to, like, I walked into the sewing uh, store. I had to get ribbons. I'm making bookmarks because they're really easy to make. And there's like ribbons everywhere and all these different colors. And it's like, oh my God, I get to, it's like an ice cream shop. Anyway, so obviously you can see I'm quite happy about that. So that's doing a lot for my mental health. Uh, yeah, so I'll let you go. <laughs> what was the old, what's the old English word for that? Uh, is it haberdashery? When you go into a oh. shop that has all the materials oh, I, laid out? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I think it's, somebody will tell I think oh. somebody will tell me if I remembered that wrong, but I think that's the yes. right word for it. It's beautiful. Oh my goodness. Okay, that's good because I love words. So that's a, that's perfect. <laughs> Thanks. So for those of you on the line who have enjoyed one of these uh, joined one of these events before, um, we're not doing PowerPoint for the next half an hour. We're going to go through um, a series of kind of key points from the speakers. You can give your questions anonymously through Zoom. You can drop them into Facebook. You can also put them anonymously through our website as well. So with that, let's dive right in. Um, I think with Trisha, can we start with you? Sure. I actually think we were going to start with Ivan. Were we? My bad. I oh, no I'm sorry. I mean, see what I mean? Okay, Ivan, let's kick off with you. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. Um, so, so again, as a broad overview, the topic of, of today's conversation is really for us to talk about uh, basically what we would refer to as cognitive abilities. And so when, when we talk about that, what we're referring to is really a host of, of different uh, skills that, that we possess that we really require to kind of navigate through our, through our daily lives. And so, so to dig a little bit more specifically into that, what, what we're really talking about are things like uh, attention span and ability to focus and concentrate, um, things like our, our memory skills, you know, our ability to learn new information and, and to process information and to hopefully hold on to this material so we can use it to, you know, again, function in our daily lives. I could give a, you know, a lot of examples, uh, you know, going to the store and remembering where, where you parked your car it might be an important thing uh, for us to, to function um, uh, adequately. Um, it, it also encompasses kind of some, some more of the, some of the more complex uh, abilities too that would include things like um, problem solving, our ability to plan, to come up with strategies, to organize ourselves. Um, if you think about what uh, you know, modern life is like for, for many of us, it's really, uh, uh, we're, we get bombarded by information from multiple sources. Um, you know, the, the information uh, that we get 
you know, comes through our emails, to our phones, to our, you know, through, uh, through cable, through, um, you know, a variety of different social media sources. And I find that, you know, part of uh, what survival is, is, is managing and keeping track of all this information. And, and you know, this is definitely the, the uh, you know, an era where, um, you know, fortunately we have our devices to help us out, but we still have to be able to manage through all these information sources. And so, um, so one of the terms that I wanted to bring up too, that, that sort of speaks to some of these planning and multitasking skills is, is the concept of executive functions. And if you think about uh, executive skills, what executive skills are is a, a myriad of different abilities that allow us to do you know, complex goal-directed kinds of activities. And I think one of the best examples that I often give is that if you're gonna sit down and cook an elaborate meal, you really are taxing your executive abilities because you have to do a lot of planning you have to figure out what it is that, you know, you have to go to the store and buy your stuff. And then once you get home, you have to multitask. You know, you have to, you know, put uh, certain things in the oven and on the stove and, and, you know, set timers and you have to stop certain things and stop other things. It seems kind of simplistic, but really there's a lot of cognitive activities that, that are going on. And so, um, so I, I think in many ways, the topic is very timely right now because of what we're all experiencing with you know the exceptional changes that have been brought on by COVID and and I think that um, I think probably most of us would agree that um, you know life has changed in many ways for us and 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 the way that it has changed is that it has uh, you know kept us apart from the ones that we want to be with it has uh, forced us to become more, uh, you, you know, isolated. It has forced us to um, interact less with others in person and interact more through means such as, you know, Zoom talks and conversations and Skype and you know, all the various um, other uh, sort of ways of communicating these days. And, and with that comes a lot of uh, psychological distress and, and, you know, problems with um, organizing ourselves. And I think that, um, you know, if you just consider all the changes that we've had to adapt to, that alone has the potential to disrupt all of those cognitive skills that, that we were talking about, you know, our attention span, our focus, concentration, and so on. And so um, if you think about, um, and I'm not going to dig too much, but, but if you think about the way that the brain is organized, we have a system that, that deals with our ability to manage stress, okay? We have kind of a part of the nervous system where whenever we experience stress, it leads to a variety of different bodily responses and brain changes. And, and one of the difficulties is that this stress-related response is actually very incompatible with our ability to process information. Okay, so what that means is that, you know, the stress that's introduced by isolation and by COVID and all of these, you know, the new normal, um, it interferes with our ability to, you know, stay organized and maintain our normal, uh, you know, ways of living. And so, um, so again, I think it's important to just 
recognize that, you know, in these exceptional times, we're already at a disadvantage when it comes to, you know, functioning optimally in terms of our cognition. So, um, so again, what that means is that as part of our management of trying to, you know, keep our brains healthy and to keep our, our, our cognition functioning optimally, what we also have to keep in mind is that we need to keep our sort of emotional state and our stress uh, system also, you know, um, managed and, and, and taken care of as well. So, um, you know, so, so again, it, it's sort of double duty, you know, keeping track of things, but also managing stress and managing all these exceptional changes that we've had to endure. So, uh, so, so again, with, with that introduction, I think we were going to now turn over to Tricia and she's going to talk a little bit about more specifically some of the cognitive experiences that, that, um, that much of the research has shown that, that people with bipolar disorder tend to experience. Yeah. Yeah. Before we do that, Tricia, can we just see if Victoria has anything that she wanted to bounce off what Ivan just presented and the idea of double juicy? Does it feel like that for you, Victoria? Does it feel like we're doubling down in terms of the, the impact of stress and anxiety contextualized in COVID laid on to cognitive issues and bipolar disorder for you? Yeah, yeah, I never, I mean, I guess I, ha I never um, framed it that way, I've, but I've definitely doubled down on all my tools and my skills because I've found that my mood disorder has been uh, more affected and, uh, the symptoms are exacerbated. So in the last six months, I've experienced far more uh, depression, anxiety um, than I have probably in the last five years. And so, and with that, um, just my ability to, I was thinking about when you were describing all the things that really um, are considered cognitive is prioritizing, right? Decision-making. And if you have a job, uh, if you're lucky enough to, and right now to have a job, um, it's so essential to have those skills so that you can maintain that. And then the, the I, irony that you're saying how our body with a stress response, which helps us physically, in quotes, get away from the threat or fight the threat, it, in modern times, it's not helpful because most of the times in order to deal with our stress, we need our cognitive ability. Um, and so it, when you said this, I realized why I've been focusing so much on managing my stress response, which always seems to be triggered, oh, 536 times a day. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, um, I, and so one of the wellness tools is uh, doing mini mindfulness. I like your idea of bites of yoga, you know, bites of mindfulness, um, really be belly breathing, you know, all these things that are really simple, but also really soothing. Um, and that can be done in a Zoom call and nobody would know <laughs> so that, you know, they're portable. Um, yeah, so I, I, I hope that sort of reflects some of what you were saying, Ivan. Yeah, so I think that, you know, um, extending off what Victoria and Ivan have, have talked about, uh, certainly there is, especially this year, this universal experience of having to deal with all these external stressors and internal anxiety and tension that um, 
to some degree is impacting everyone uh, in terms of their cognitive abilities. Um, and then aside from that, the research has also shown that uh, with a bipolar disorder diagnosis that's often uh, associated with changes in, in cognitive abilities. So things like memory, concentration, um, executive functioning, as, as Ivan mentioned, that um, when, we, when we look at group averages and we take a group of, of individuals with bipolar disorder and we compare their average performance against um, a group without bipolar disorder or without any you know, diagnosable psychiatric illness, we see change, uh, we see differences in, in those averages. Um, that being said, we're sort of having established that we're sort of now at the point of just trying to understand um, to what degree that's prevalent across, you know, the entire range of individuals with bipolar disorder um, and what are the specific contributors to those cognitive deficits. So um, with the first point uh, in terms of the prevalence of those deficits, um, you might have seen, you know, just with um, Ivan, Aaron, and myself, who uh, disclose some of the cognitive deficits that we, we find ourselves struggling with, um, regardless of whether you're someone living with bipolar disorder or not, within a population, there's huge variability in terms of cognitive abilities um, and where people have deficits and where people have strengths. And just now we're starting to see research uh, looking at individuals with bipolar disorder and looking at what the variability is. So not just, um, you know, looking at group averages, but are there different, um, uh, are there different individual var uh, variations in cognitive abilities? And um, the research, even though it's kind of in its infancy, is, is suggesting that yes, there is. And that what tends to be the pattern amongst these studies is, you know, there is a group of um, uh, individuals with a bipolar diagnosis who seem to show uh, impairments across multiple different domains. Um, but then there's a group that only shows impairments in certain cognitive domains. Um, so they might show impairments in like things like attention or how quickly they're able to process information, but other things like memory, executive functioning are well within the normal range. And then there is a group that um, functions across the board well within a normal range, if not even better than average in certain domains. So there is huge variability in terms of cognitive ability um, in individuals with bipolar disorder. So um, all that to say, you know, uh, receiving a diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, does not automatically mean that you will struggle with cognitive deficits. It does not mean that you will struggle with cognitive deficits across all of these different domains. Um, and that it's something that's kind of highly variable um, across, across the population. And in terms of uh, potential contributors, um, to the severity of cognitive deficits that, that one might experience. Um, and I think um, at this point, I'll let Victoria kind of talk a, more about her personal uh, experience. One of those things is, is the mood 
state that you're in and how severe your mood symptoms are, which is certainly something that can contribute to um, the degree and type of cognitive deficits you're struggling with at any point in time. Um, so maybe I'll let Victoria talk a bit more about her own personal experience with that. Yeah, yeah, because I think um, Ivan uh, and you were also going to speak about when people are, when we don't have symptoms and we're sort of in that well sort of phase. Um, and I definitely, uh, it, this really was a great way to reflect on when, you know, for me, I, I have sort of an anxious state, which is most of the time, actually, <laughs> um, depression, uh, hypomania, mania, mania, psychosis, and then sort of when I'm really stable. And most times I'm in this well state, um, but subtle things. And uh, I notice a lot of differences. So with depression, uh, it's comprehension. So a lot of times it's really hard to uh, remain uh, engaged and focus and concentrate, but particularly if I'm reading or trying to absorb some kind of information, it takes a lot more effort to do so. And part of that is also my lack of engagement and motivation because I'm in a depressed state. Um, and also just that fatigue that happens. So I think my whole body doesn't have the same amount of energy available to use these sort of skills. Um, and then in hypomania, the interesting thing is, is that when I, I feel like it, that's when I can excel in certain areas, um, when, before it sort of goes off the edge to mania or psychosis. So my focus is better, my efficiency is better, my decision-making skills are quicker, um, my creativity is um, contained, but still of good quality. Um, and that also transfers over into my stable mood often. So it's, a, a, I feel very fortunate that um, during my stable uh, times where my mood state is sort of in quotes normal, um, I retain a, a, some good cognitive skills. I think it's contributed by the fact that I do a, a lot of sort of other tools like medication, exercise, nutrition, sleeping, uh, counseling, things like this, stress management. Um, when I go into uh, mania and psychosis, it's a whole other um, ball. It's uh, psychosis, it, it's completely different because I'm not, uh, I call it a non-shared reality. So I may be functioning well in my, re my reality, uh, but it's certainly not um, your reality. So the choices I'm making are, at, put me in danger, um, Sometimes they're against the law, <laughs> um, not really safe for me, things like that. And so my, uh, and also strangely, I'm often so, I don't know, I don't want to say in the moment because like present state uh, in terms of a positive way, but I am in such a, a present state that I don't take in, I, can't, I don't have long-term thinking. I don't have, I can't see the big picture. I'm only in the moment. So it's sort of like a child almost. Um, and mania sort of has some of those where my, my, uh, thinking becomes really scattered. Um, I haven't been in mania for a long time. I've actually been more in psychosis more frequently. And then anxiety throughout it all sort of interferes with it, which is sort of the bugaboo, right? It's like the, it's like the nasty older sister. <laughs> that's just always, you know, bugging me, bullying me and stuff. And it, and it, it creates a, uh, an edginess that distracts me a lot of the time. Um, and part of that is, you know, cognitively 
negative self-talk about self-doubt, but it's the physical manifestations of it as well, where the energy level is uncomfortable. Um, and so my inner landscape is always sort of pulling me out of what I need to be doing. So as the worse the anxiety gets, the more I have to focus on grounding. And, and because of that, then I don't get as much done. I can maybe get a couple of hours done in a day and I'm working at a much slower pace. So that's when I need to bring self-compassion in a lot. So that I would say that's sort of in a, in a, uh, a nutshell, pardon the pun anyway, um, how, how it affects me personally. And uh, I, I'm not sure if we're going to Ivan or Trisha or whatever, so. Sure, I, I, I can follow up. Thank, thank you for that description, Victoria. I think that, that, that that's, uh, you know, you're really personalizing what, what I think, um, you know, we are sort of understanding or beginning to understand in the research arena. And that's that, you know, that as sy symptoms become more prominent, that there's more potential for, you know, the typical uh, cognitive or thinking skills to be interrupted in a significant way for some. Um, and, and sorry, Ivan, I, and I just wanted to also mention is that what I've also recognized is that when I was first diagnosed and my cognition was really impaired by depression or any of the symptoms, and when I would come out of those phases, because um, I did see a, a question around this, um, it was through experience of understanding how to manage my illness and what really worked for me in particular that helped bring back some of my cognitive abilities. Um, and so if I really found that my concentration and comprehension were really poor, it was recognizing that and then finding tools that specifically worked for me and worked over that. So I, I think I wanna give hope to people who are finding and struggling with it, even when they're not symptomatic or they are, that it, it's like built, rebuilding a muscle. And that's really what I felt like I had to do. Okay. But, but again, it sounds like most of the experience that you had with the cognition being affected was kind of at the same time as you were experiencing the symptoms, you know, the symptoms elevated and that's when, you know, it prompted the, the, you know, lapses in, in memory and focus and concentration and so on. And then you, and then you, uh, you know, sort of brought in the, the uh, strategies for managing and then things tended to, to get better. Yeah, um, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. And cause I think that, um, and again, uh, sort of taking off on, on some of the points that, that Trisha made about the, the variability across different individuals that, um, you know, again, we're, we're really beginning to understand that when symptoms are prominent, you know, cognition tends to be more affected, but um, when the symptoms tend to recede and, and get better, that there can also be some variation across people uh, with regard to how much they continue to be affected. So for some, and it sounds like it might have been the case for you when when the symptoms kind of went away and you you know you engaged your your strategies to improve cognition and so on and, and to self-manage that you know your cognition got back to a place where you kind of were back to baseline kind of to a normal state and that and that's fantastic to hear um and and for for other folks you know it is possible that there could be some you know, persisting things that, that, that also have the potential to interfere with daily life. Um, 
So meaning that, you know, one way to, to, to sort of think about this is that some of the difficulties could be sort of state related, which tend to be kind of transient and dependent on the symptom fluctuations. And some of them could be what we would, you know, consider to be more trait related, where, you know, regardless of whether the symptoms are there or not, there still might be some residual difficulties that have the potential to, to interfere with, with daily life. So, um, but again, that's going to depend on, um, you know, the particular individual. And we're just starting to, to understand that, um, that the name of the game is really more about the individual experience, you know, that we can't generalize to everyone that has a diagnosis with bipolar disorder. And so that some may struggle more than others when it comes to, to these types of issues. Um, the, the other thing that, that I think is, is relevant to, to this discussion, and I'd also, Victoria, be really curious to hear what your experience has been kind of throughout the course of the illness. And, and that's the question of what happens to these, you know, cognitive difficulties that, that a person experiences. In other words, um, as, uh, you, you know, as the illness kind of continues in an individual, um, you know, we often get questions like, you know, is, is this a progressive thing where the cognition actually tends to get worse and worse? Or is it something that is kind of, you know, detectable early on in the illness, but then it stays relatively stable? And, and I think that there's, um, you know, that's something that, that we don't really fully have an answer to that, you know, when you, when you turn to some of the research that's been done. I think, you know, one of the things that, that we do understand is that early on in the illness, like close to the initial diagnosis, that if we do, um, you know, evaluations on folks, like at the time of illness onset, that we can already detect some, you know, cognitive difficulties in, in, in many people. But the question about what happens to that as, you know, time continues is a bit controversial. You know, there, there's been some, um, you know, some data that suggests that, you know, the more mood episodes that you experience, the more likely that you might have, you know, progression in some of these cognitive symptoms. Although when we look at some of the longitudinal studies, in other words, the studies that have followed people, you know, the same person across time, a lot of those data generally tend, you know, do not support the idea that cognitive problems get worse and worse and worse. So, um, and we also, you know, from, from some of the research that we've done at UBC, we actually have found that, you know, for example, early on in the illness, um, if people, you know, maintain their treatment regimens and, and are sort of adhere with the, the you know, the initial uh, medications and, and, and psychosocial kinds of interventions, that there, there might even be a potential to show some resolution of, of some of these problems too. And so, um, so again, right. I, don't, I don't think that it's an assumption that things are necessarily going to get worse and worse. I think, I think that, that um, most of that data actually suggests that, that these cognitive difficulties actually remain pretty steady. And in some cases, you know, if, if it's well-managed, things can actually get a bit better as well. Such, so such a key point of hope. I hate being chair, but part of my job as chair is to acknowledge the fact that we have so many questions coming through 
so thick and fast. So I'm, I'm wondering with the panel if it's okay if we get into those so that we can um, start to work our way through them. Would that be okay with the three of you? Okay. Um, so thank you to everybody so far who's, who's put questions in. Incredible international audience for this event. Um, somebody joining us uh, from Algeria who states, I got my bachelor's and my master's degree in finance. I had a great job. In April last year, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, and have struggled with memory, concentration problems, return to work. Um, this person would like at this point to return to university and do a PhD, but they're asking really essentially, is that a feasible option? Um, is there the ability for them to regain enough memory and concentration to think about grad school at this point? Um, so I guess, uh, uh, first of all, um, thank you so much for the question. And um, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about, you know, that experience. And I think the early part of the illness or, you know, that period, the months right after you have developed symptoms and gotten the diagnosis is, is really challenging because there's a lot of trial and error in terms of, you know, finding the right, the right treatment and what's going to going to work for you. Um, and, and then to have COVID piled on top of that, like that's, that's, uh, that's a very, um, that's a challenging couple of years for sure. So I would say that, first of all, in general, um, whether it's feasible for someone after a diagnosis of bipolar disorder to resume their work or to go back into a graduate program, absolutely. Um, there are obviously many um, many people with the individuals with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder who um, are able to uh, do those things. Um, in terms of what uh, um, factors that might be playing a role in, um, uh, I guess, continue uh, perpetuating any memory or concentration or cognitive issues um, that you might be experiencing. Um, one thing to consider is, is kind of like Victoria and Ivan were discussing is um, if there are symptoms, mood symptoms still present, um, that could certainly be impacting things. So even if um, we often see that, you know, even if uh, the person doesn't meet like the diagnostic threshold for a current depression, there might still be depressive symptoms there. Similarly, even if the person doesn't meet the diagnostic threshold for mania or hypomania, some of those symptoms might still be there. And those things can certainly impact cognition. And that's something to kind of work with a care provider to make sure that all of those, what we call sub-threshold or sub-syndromal symptoms are being dealt with. Um, other things um, like Victoria kind of so beautifully um, encapsulated is um, anxiety. Um, we know that bipolar disorder and anxiety go together often and anxiety can certainly um, impact your cognition. So if there are issues with uh, anxiety, um, whether it's generalized anxiety or having panic attacks or those sorts of things, those are also, um, that's also something else that um, could be addressed and might help. And then, um, Yes, maybe I'll take this opportunity to go a little bit into management strategies. Um, so, you know, after making sure that uh, all of the mood symptoms are adequately dealt with, anxiety is adequately dealt with, um, the things that we would generally recommend to people to try to maintain um, good cognitive functioning 
is first of all, um, not specific to bipolar disorder. So the things that we'd recommend are things that everyone should really be doing for optimal health and functioning in day-to-day -day life. So, um, and again, as, as Victoria mentioned, just the things for general wellness, like we know that exercise um, can um, have a profound impact on your mood, but it can also impact the brain's ability to um, generate new connections between neurons and to maintain the health of your brain cells. Um, good diet uh, can also play a huge role and sleep management because um, I know for myself, if, I've, if I haven't slept well, then it's, it's kind of done for the day. Like I'm not gonna be able to concentrate and focus with any sort of um, efficacy. So those are general things that we would sort of um, recommend. And then the other thing that uh, may be more specific um, to bipolar disorder is the role of medications. So we know that medications are important for maintaining mood stability, which in turn is important for maintaining good cognitive functioning. Um, but at the same time, um, certainly, uh, many of the medications that we can use for certain individuals may impact um, ability to concentrate and focus either because they're causing the person to feel fatigued um, or um, a direct uh, impact on, on cognition. Um, so it's important to recognize that and uh, it, important to recognize that not every medication will affect every individual the same way. So, um, you know, person A might find difficulties with concentration um, with lithium, but not with another medication and so forth. So that's also something to kind of discuss with your care provider uh, in terms of the potential impact of medications. And I don't know if, if Victoria or Ivan had anything to add to that. That, that, that was uh, really, really well said, Trisha. Thank, thanks for that. Um, I, I would also add that, um, that, you know, I guess based on the question and the description, it sounds like the sense that there's cognitive difficulties are also coming from, you know, from your individual experience and, and perception as well. And, and I just want to put out there the idea that uh, really for all of us, often, um, you know, our, our subjective reports of, of our own cognitive functioning surpri surprisingly does not, is not often consistent with, um, you know, with more objective markers of cognitive functioning. And so what I mean by that is that, um, you know, there are ways to, uh, to get, you know, evaluations that could help, um, you know, measure and understand the, the extent of, of cognitive difficulty. And um, in some instances, people's cognition can actually be relatively preserved based on testing and things like that, despite the fact that our own personal perceptions of our cognition might be that I'm really struggling. And so, so one of the things that, that sometimes can be useful as, as a tool to help, um, you know, sort of gauge the severity of cognitive difficulties to actually, you know, get, get an assessment to, 
to help um, you know provide more data. And so sometimes the self-reported difficulties in cognition are actually more of a reflection of some of these things that Tricia was talking about, things like mood, anxiety, and depression. Um, and so even though the sense might be that you know my mind is is not what you know functioning the way that it used to, that that might be more of a manifestation of depression or mood, um, and maybe might not be such an accurate index of you know of the actual cognition uh, that that one might be experiencing. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. There's a, a related question from the audience about um, the impact of mania in particular. Is uh, is the impact of mania particularly bad for the brain, manic episodes? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. I think that um, in general, when, you know, earlier I alluded to some of the studies that have tried to quantify, you know, things like um, what we would call disease burden, you know, and, and that's kind of a fancy way of saying, you know, how many mood episodes has a person experienced, say, throughout their lifetime, or how many hospitalizations and things like that. And so some of the, the studies that have been done have aimed to look at, you know, measure someone's cognition and then see if there's a relationship between these illness burden variables, such as, you know, mood episodes and so on. Um, and again, that, that literature has been a bit mixed. Um, there is some evidence that um, it's possible that the manic types of episodes might have a bit more of an impact on cognition than the cumulative depressive episodes. But again, this, this kind of research is still, you know, fairly in its infancy. Um, but, but there is a little bit of data to suggest that the manic episodes can be, you know, a little bit more toxic, if you will, in terms of affecting cognition relative to the other types of episodes. Victoria, anything from you at this point? Are you okay carrying on with the questions as they're coming in? <laughs> uh, I think I'd rather get the questions just answered. I would out. just echo that um, what Tricia and Ivan said, um, all those things I think are really, uh, spot on i relate to them okay well let's stick with the slightly more clinically focused ones and then I, I do want to um save enough time to get into kind of specific treatment interventions if there are any for cognitive difficulties but um another clinical question that came in is i'm curious to know about the experiences of loss of language world word recall speech incoherence and a transient stutter post episode is this something that you see much clinically maybe a question for you Tricia? Um, so a couple of things comes to mind. So things like uh, speech incoherence, potentially, hmm, I'm not sure about this. So things like speech incoherence, or um, if I'm interpreting that correctly, speaking in a way that uh, does not necessarily make sense to someone who is listening within an episode that might be a manifestation of psychosis for example in mania or in depression um, we see what in, in psychosis we see what's called um, we can see what's called like thought disorganization where the ideas are not necessarily being put together in a way that's linear um, 
but that would be within an episode. Uh, post episode, I guess I would be wondering more about, uh, especially with the stutter incoherence, um, potentially some medication side effect um, that may be more of a manifestation of, of a, yeah, a medication side effect. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think this is far, um, far lower down the list, but, um, you know, just to be comprehensive, like whether there might be something neurologically going on, but I, I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but yeah, probably a medication side effect would be sort of my, my first guess with that. Thanks. And then a bunch of questions coming in related to treatment, treatment intervention. Somebody has a specific question about um, ECT and about the consequences of ECT for memory, which might be a little bit beyond the realm of, of what we need to focus on in the last five minutes of discussion that we have for this webinar, but is a great question. Um, but I do want to hear from all of you about um, what's the state of play for specific interventions to improve cognition in bipolar disorder. Is there such a thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on a few sort of treatment strategies. Um, and again, I, I want to sort of piggyback on some of the, the, the wonderful examples that Victoria was, was giving, you know, and that Trisha alluded to as well, that I think some of the, um, you know, interventions or management strategies are really ones that I would consider to be things that are um, you know, things that all of us could, could use to, you know, improve brain health. And, and again, not to get into great detail, this would include things like exercise, which we know is very important, uh, maintaining a good diet, maintaining good sleep hygiene. You know, the other thing that seems to be uh, really, um, we're understanding that that associates with kind of increasing our brain plasticity is also um, you know, maintaining our social interactions with others. And, and again, you know, this is, you know, during these times of COVID, again, that's yet another strike that we have against our ability to maintain, you know, those positive relationships. But I think that, um, you know, keeping our, our minds active, you know, and, and both in terms of, you know, engaging in, in tasks that might be, you know, related to work or related to hobbies, you know, things that, you know, musical pursuits, artistic pursuits, you know, all of these things are critically important to, you know, to keeping those brain cells active and to, and to um, you know, encouraging those, those connections to be maintained and, 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 you know, maintaining our social contacts, you know, social interaction is, is critically important. It's something that we're really understanding is, is yet another sort of uh, pro-cognitive type of, of strategy. Um, you know, beyond those general types, types of issues, um, obviously there, there's a lot of interest in, in the discovery of various, um, you know, medical treatments for cognitive difficulties not just specific to bipolar, you know, this is relevant to neurological conditions, dementia, traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, there are some, uh, you know, th there's a host of uh, sort of so-called um, uh, pro-cognitive medications that, uh, that are under study 
you know, at UBC, we're in the midst of doing a multi-site multi study looking at one particular drug called lorazidone, where we had some pilot data that shows that it might show some, uh, you know, some at least modest um, improvements on cognition. But the reality is, is that we don't have a, yet a bona fide, uh, you know, drug or, or agent that we can really identify as something that we should definitively, you know, um, prescribe to people to, you know, improve cognition in a meaningful way. Um, so in terms of other psychosocial types of things, that there's something called, there's a therapy called cognitive remediation therapy, um, which in its broadest sense is really an effort to, um, it really has two goals in mind. One of them is, if you think of the, the, the brain as, you know, the analogy of the brain as a muscle, one component of that is to exercise the brain muscle by doing things like engaging in, you know, computerized tasks that uh, that enhance your, you know, cognitive functioning in, in the various areas that we've talked about: attention, concentration, memory, and so on. So that's one component of most cognitive remediation programs. And then another one would be just kind kind of coming up with daily strategies to help overcome these difficulties. And I think that would correlate more with the kinds of things that Victoria is talking about in terms of, you know, the self-management strategies. Um, you know, if we recognize what our cognitive weaknesses are, how can we use some of our cognitive strengths to actually, you know, circumvent these, these limitations so that we can continue to function optimally. So again, that sounded like they were foundational to Victoria, right? The way that you were describing them. Yeah, yeah, if I, I don't, do we have time where I can chime in a bit? Yeah, can you, a uh, couple of minutes and then yeah. we'll leave to wrap to go to the resources? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I was just writing some things down. So um, the things that uh, Ivan and uh, Trisha were saying around exercise and sleep, um, if I, and what I notice a lot of times is that those are the two things that are often the most difficult for people to get into a habit of, but it's also the one that's the most accessible. Um, and I really love the idea of self-management tools because it does not rely on any outside um, sources, your own motivation, of course. So it, you might need support from others to help you take some steps, but it means it's always available usually. Um, and so when I've talked to people, a lot of times their sleep is really wonky and it, they've never thought that it needs to be sort of tweaked. And it's a huge difference for me if I, um, so as I get more stressed, my sleep uh, becomes worse. So I need to really stabilize it. And I, I notice an immediate difference and exercise. I didn't even think of this. I do it for mood, but what I also realize is like it, because it's, you need to be focused when you're doing a physical activity or you'll trip, you know, if, if you're running anyway, um, and it clears my head. So it really, it, it's as if it, it's like going through a, a car wash for me. So my brain just feels lighter, better. And it's also a sense of mastery. And one of the other um, things that weren't mentioned uh, were, and I'd want to emphasize also the social contact, which I think there's something that we don't really understand how it works, but that social contact, I think really makes connections within our brain. Um, whether it's because we have compassion and empathy experiences. Um, and all of these things um, work like medication in a way because they do change our brain chemistry. 
um, by the very fact that we're doing something, it changes how we're uh, operating. Um, uh, one, I really feel like finding something that gives meaning and purpose in your life so that you're not only uh, activating your brain, but you're inspiring it. And I think that that happens and it can happen on a very small scale. It can happen when uh, by doing a new hobby by learning something where there is a slight frustration, um, but not a uh, total frustration where you want to give up and feel like a failure, because if you're feeling depressed, that's not going to be very helpful. Um, so those were probably some of the other ones. Um, and also, uh, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but working on trauma-informed therapy where you're really aware of what your stress response is so that you can learn to bring those cortisol and other kinds of uh, um, chemicals down in your body. Uh, because I find then what happens is that that often interferes with my ability to be present. Um, and it also interferes and can trigger certain mood states. So for me, that's being to going to a counselor. I go, it's free mental health team. I've got a great therapist. It's really helpful that way. Um, and music is another way that I engage my brain. Um, it's more passive, of course, but I actually think it, it does a lot to, I, I know it's worked for some dementia where there's some research that says it really starts to at least soothe some people. I don't know what it does for cognitive. Anyway, so that's, I'll stop there. I've got lots of, so this is the stuff I love because it's so empowering to do. And I, yeah. And that's the key key from it. You know, I met a message from hearing the three of you pre present so beautifully today on this topic is that there is an awful lot of stuff that is under our control within the space of thinking and memory and cognition. Um, and that's, I think, the, the most important message to share as part of this webinar today. Okay, well, let's end as usual with some resources and tools for you. Um, I'll go through the three this fairly quickly. Tricia has produced a blog at the beginning of this year um, on this very topic. So if you'd like to read some more of her thoughts on cognition and the brain and bipolar disorder, we encourage you to visit that on the Crest PD blog site. Um, Ivan mentioned uh, a number of uh, points around cognitive remediation therapy. And in your resources document, um, we've provided links to two groups, one, invest one uh, scientist and the BC Schizophrenia Society who provide some deeper resources and tips and tools in this area. Of course, our Bipolar Wellness Center has a suite of information on cognition specifically geared for people with bipolar disorder. And uh, as part of those tools is provided is a link to the International Society of Bipolar Disorders Cognition Booklet that was produced by the Cognition Task Force, which Ivan was actually a member of. It's a very nice resource, which gets into uh, a little bit more depth on some of the topics we talked about today. And then our uh, CRESPD quality of life tool actually measures uh, cognition as one domain of quality of life over time. You can use the online version of that or follow our project by Polar Bridges to develop an app to help you have this in your pocket. And then the CRESPD main academic website um, has a place where you can sign up for our Crest newsletter, Crest Currents, that will give you information about the next TalkBD event, which will happen in 2021. 
as well as information about the various studies that we're doing, for example, our bipolar disorder and magic mushrooms survey, which is happening internationally. And that's also the place where you can access all of the prior recordings from our Talk BD Live events. And you can see a list of those there that we've held throughout this year. And then finally, and very importantly for you, for us, if you haven't yet completed a three question survey, it should take you less than a minute, but it's so valuable for us to hear about what you would like to speak, us to hear us speak on, what topics to cover next year, and give us, you know, candid feedback about whether you think we're doing a good job or not, or what you would like to see different change or kept. So with that, a huge thank you to all the people who support our work um, and our funders, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research in particular. I'll just pass us back to the panel members for any final thoughts on this very busy webinar, which we all kind of kept uh, our cognition going for. Congratulations, that's a lot with three presenters at one time. We did it, kudos. Any final thoughts, uh, Ivan, Trish and Victoria? Um, yeah, I guess I would just, you know, say again, thank you so much for joining us. And I guess my, um, my only uh, kind of final thought would be, you know, whether you're someone living with bipolar disorder or not, um, I think that it's important not to feel isolated in whatever struggles, uh, cognitive or, or fun uh, functional that you might be having and that and to know that um, we're all kind of struggling together in our own unique ways. Um, so just make sure to reach out uh, to your friends and your support network um, uh, if you feel like you're you're struggling because um, we're all in this together. Yeah, I would just um, echo that. And um, if people um, that are watching are concerned um, or, or want to get back sort of skills, uh, cognitive skills that they feel like they've lost, um, to really reach out both to talk about it with friends and people that they uh, that you trust, but also, you know, finding ways that you can get assessed and then really if you can become proactive it it makes such a difference and then I feel like in my experience um, the likelihood of a better outcome so that the results are really positive are increased far more um, and then you'll have setbacks it's a given it's part of the process don't I would say don't assume that how you're experiencing things now or in a setback is what will be in the future. Um, things change and um, they improve. I can say that. Yeah, that, that would, I have very little to add other than, um, you know, just, just to think about, you know, we all bring our strengths, our talents and our weaknesses and our limitations and uh, you know it, it's great for us to embrace that. Uh, that that's that represents who we are, and and um, and also that there are some things that are under our control. You know, some things that uh, that we can do to try to to um, you know make it through the day and survive and and become inspired too. I think that that's part of something that that we all share. So. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you to our panelists and to everybody who joined us on the line. Stay safe, stay well, and we will see you at the beginning of the new year. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for being here. Bye. Thank you.